Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I would just like to say from the jump, the fact that Joker has won back-to-back MVPs, that's an indictment. That means Joel Embiid, Giannis Antetokounmpo are not very good players, even though they came in second and third place in the NBA voting for this award. Thanks a lot, Mike. Uh, that's been Take Line for today. We're going to shut it down right here, and that's going to be the sound by the show. <laughs> Appreciate it. All right. It was, it was fun, guys. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Take Line, another great show for you folks. Uh, today I will be joined by, I call him Daddy. I call him, <laughs> I call him Daddy. He is uh, the very funny CJ Toledano, who also happens to be host, comedian extraordinaire. Uh, together we are going to talk to uh, John Hollinger, uh, one of the uh, most notable and kind of important basketball voices, I think, in the last couple of decades. Oh, we'll be talking to uh, Nuggets beat reporter Mike Singer about uh, Nikola Jokic's second uh, MVP award uh, in a row. Uh, but first, uh, CJ and I are uh, going to be joined by producer Ryan Walshen to just talk about uh, last night's NBA games. Let's start with game four, Boston Celtics, uh, Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, Celtics win 116-108. Series is tied 2-2. Al Horford coming out of the fucking crypt, 35 years old. I carried them for most of the game until Jason Tatum got his shit together. Uh, dunked on Giannis. He hit him in the face a little bit. Uh, but just an unbelievable performance by him. Uh, uh, and these last couple of games, I thought, with uh, from the Bucks, you really felt, even though the Bucks won Game Three, you really felt Chris Middleton's absence down the stretch. What did we think of of uh, what do we think of this this game, and what do we think of Al Horford, like the rejuvenation of Al Horford? God, can can we just say? I mean, the beginning of these playoffs, people had to be reminded that Al Horford was back on this team. Like people felt like they were in a coma and woke up and he was, he had never left and it feels like he's never left. And you know what, as a Celtics hater, I am actually in, in rooting for the bucks for this whole postseason. I'm really, really happy to see what Al Horford it's like. It's incredible. So Giannis dunked on Horford earlier in the game and got a tech for staring him down, (laughs) which I always hate. Let guys stare each other down. It's fucking great. Let them trash talk. I love it. And who doesn't love it? It's fantastic. But anyway, his sister then later tweeted like, oh, I could tell by the look on Al's face right there that it right. was like a, <laughs> a switch had flipped. Um, I always love shit like that. And then later Al like praised God for basically, you know, during the post game was like, you know, it's all because of him. It's all because of God. I always love stuff like that because it's like one the idea that Al would have needed, he needed that. He needed somebody yeah. to be like kick sand in his face, like the proverbial 90 uh, pound weakling of old to like hulk out and get to that level. And then I always love whenever anybody's like, oh, was, and I praise God because it's like, God was like, you know what? Fuck, fuck Giannis and the Bucks today. <laughs> I don't, I don't like them. Uh, I'm going with my guy. Alfred. <laughs> this is what happens in the playoffs, right? Yeah. 
you always expect it. You always expect the superstars to come through, which is why Jason Tatum struggles over the last couple games and even this game have been notable. But there's always going to be that random game where somebody who Eddie House, uh, yeah. Al Horford, some guy you didn't expect was not on the radar at all comes through and goes huge. Um, and we're kind of waiting for that from the Bucks outside of Giannis. Uh, and they're going to need that in in this home stretch of that playoff series. What do we make of Jason Tatum's struggles in this series? You know, I think that as much praise as we heaped on him for as well as he did in the Nets series, he's kind of come down to earth. It's kind of like, oh, so he's not just top five all the time. Uh, yeah. Okay. We've been looking at him struggle, obviously, with facing a better roster, a better overall like superstar in Giannis. And the, the offense and the defense that was on display in the Brooklyn series, you know, on the offensive side, his shots just aren't falling. Like even in this game four, people called it a rebound, but 30, 30 yeah. something points on 24 shots yeah. is still a tough, it's a tough stat line when you're looking at it from an efficiency standpoint. Absolutely. I mean, he came through it- he came through in the fourth quarter is when he started he to really put it on. But up to that point, he was like four of 21, according to Kirk Goldsberry, through game three up until about the third quarter of, of game four. Uh, at one point, like he was 0 for 10 when Wes Matthews was his primary defender, which is a, a <laughs> listen, Wes Matthews is nice. I, I like Wes Matthews. He's a solid player. Uh, but for a player of Jason Tatum's caliber, it's not a thing that we thought would matter. Um, and, and I think you're right. Like we're just kind of seeing a difference in the physicality level. Uh, and we've watched Jason Tatum take a leap over these playoffs. And here's another obstacle that he's going to leap over this kind of like very, very physical. Cause there's times watching this series where I'm like, Holy shit. Like yeah. I, they're letting this go and I can't believe they're letting it go. And I, I think that fans want Jason Tatum to be this superstar that we're almost, we almost over-celebrate his game winners, his, his big games. But to be the superstar that everyone is making him out to be, you have to be consistently carrying that team. You can't have, you know, you can have Jalen. I mean, this is the reason why they're the number two seed is because they have a Jalen Brown who can carry. And now Al Horford being the star of this past game. Like we need to hear Jason Tatum's name more than we're hearing it now. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's what's going to get to his next level. Can he consistently do this? Or he can't just disappear as much as he is in this series. I think, yeah. I totally agree. But I think that the depth of the Celtics has really been on display. Like yeah. we're talking oh, yeah. about a game where Jalen Brown was in foul trouble and didn't play most of the fourth. Jason Tatum, we're talking about his struggles. But we're also talking about a game where Al Horford absolutely went crazy. And Marcus Smart contributed 18 points of his own. So that's 50 points between Horford and Smart. So you're really seeing the role players pick up the slack for the superstars. And I remember when we had Chris Mannix on a couple of weeks ago to react to game one of the opening series and Horford had a great performance in that game as well. And we asked him, is Horford going to be able to sustain this throughout the postseason or are the wheels going to fall off at some point and leave Boston kind of exposed? And now we're halfway through the second and Horford's still making that noise. So Mannix said that he wasn't worried about him and Horford's making him look good right now. Yeah, I, I've been watching the games with my 65-year-old uh, white father-in-law. And this <laughs> is the, he gave the perfect description on, on accident, just very naturally. We're watching the game. Al, Hor- Al Horford was taking over, and he goes, Horford, solid player. Like, he is just 
His game is so basic and straight up. The wheels can't fall off when it's just mid ranges <laughs> right, yeah. and just being in the right spot. So like, I, yeah, my, I, I, I bet on Horford for the rest of, you know, this, this postseason as far as they go. Yeah. To your point about depth, Ryan, Derek White for the Celtics, like in terms of playing defense, moving the ball, like making the right play he was plus 18, uh, only 11 points, um, four rebounds, three assists, but like just making the right play every time. And I think you contrast that with like some of uh, the, the Bucks supporting staff, like Drew Holiday, his counting stats, like 16 points, nine assists. That's great. Minus 23 plus minus and just, you know, five of 22 from the field. And, and you know, Grayson Allen has appeared like unplayable at times. It's just, you're absolutely right, Ryan. Like the depth around Giannis just needs to be we just need more solid play Bobby Portis is like hardly playing um Lopez has been uh, solid but they just need more they just need more the Celtics depth is is really showing right now let's move on to uh Warriors Memphis game four a lot of a lot of talk around this series a uh, lot of narrative around this series, a lot of acrimony, a lot of toxicity. Uh, Golden State eked out the win, 101-98. They didn't, Golden State didn't lead until the last 45 seconds of this game to let you know what a very, very strange uh, game it was. Steve Kerr tested uh, positive for the novel coronavirus COVID-19 and went into health and safety protocols like minutes before the game. Mike Brown, uh, who that day was announced as the new uh, <laughs> head coach of the Sacramento Kings, then got another promotion to head coach of the Golden State Warriors. Um, and, uh, of course, no John Morant, who's a knee injury, kind of vague knee injury with MRI results that are being hidden from the public, did not play. Uh, and, again, Golden State goes on to win a 3-1 series lead. Uh, <laughs> my takeaway from this game is if Dylan Brooks had not been suspended this series would be fucking over. <laughs> like Dylan Brooks, he uh, defensively, like he, this guy is, will not let his opponent rest. Like is such an active, chaotic defender. But this guy put in maybe the worst six minute stretch of basketball <laughs> this playoffs down the stretch of the game where it was like, triple jab step drive kick the ball out of bounds like a three-pointer with a, a, like early in the shot clock no extension on his arm weird like the weirdest three-point form where the ball sails completely over the rim hits <laughs> off the other side of the backboard just crazy shit from dylan brooks he played 39 fucking minutes uh, and the Warriors take it. I think he was the difference of the game. Like the Warriors <laughs> should give him the fucking game ball. What did What did we think of this game, fellas? I mean, can more shit happen in a series? <laughs> like truly, yeah. every five minutes, something new surfaces. But you're right. It was like watching Julian Newman play in the NBA <laughs> with Dylan Brooks. I, I it, it's it's funny. It's like. You know, I don't know if there was a, a pregame speech and they were like, we needed someone to step up and Dylan Brooks like thought was that like, was supposed to be Oh, him. it's me. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm stepping um, up. Okay. But I mean, I was, I was really surprised. I mean, the reason why I think the Grizzlies led most of that game was because, I mean, the Warriors shot horribly. They, they scored, what, 38 points? Mm -hmm. Terrible. 
Clay, Clay is not Clay. Um, he hasn't been Clay this whole series. So yeah. like all that to only be leading by like what, two or three at the half. So it, it kind of just like, it worked out the way it should have worked out. Um, I thought a masterful Steph Curry ending there and, and Traymond, yeah. that flop, I, I'm sure that's going to be <laughs> a major part of this conversation, but that flop was, um, I, it's the type of flop where I watch it and I learn something new every time on every replay. Truly hilarious, <laughs> but truly an expert at, at the move. No, CJ, you're so right, man. They, the Warriors came out of the gate shooting horribly. 0 for 15 from three until Otto Porter hits with four and a half minutes before the <laughs> yeah. half. Again, this is there's that thing where you're just looking for some guy that's gonna yeah. that's gonna carry you for a stretch, and Anna Porter was that guy for this game. You know, when you're over fifteen, I'll let the ball boy carry me if he can get the <laughs> shot in. But you know, it was funny because watching Memphis lead the game the entire time, I was thinking about the conversation we had at the start of this series, where we were like, you know, go, these games are going to be close, but Golden State is going to win all of the close matchups. You know, th- there was yeah. the blowout in reaction to the John Moran injury in game three, but all the other games have been very closely contested. Memphis was able to eke out, you know, a victory in in game two, but games one and four were kind of those situations where we know Memphis is a good team, but we also know that Memphis is a young team and, you know, we know exactly where Golden State has been. We know who they are and they showed that in both of those games. And we said, these are going to be close games that uh, Memphis doesn't win any of them. And I think that it's played out that way. And I expected the gentleman sweep that we called to to come to fruition. Um, after the game, Taylor Jenkins, uh, one of the most curious coaches in the NBA. He was, of course, curious about the play that the Grizzlies allege caused John Morant's injury. Talk about that in a second. But he said uh, uh, that he was curious to see what the last two-minute report will say about uh, Draymond Green's uh, late contest on Jaron Jackson's three, which I think – I don't know if it was a shooting foul. I think you could make the argument that it was. All of which is to say, I think the the Grizzlies remind me of the early 2000s Kings. In that, the Kings were trying to unseat the Lakers, the great Kobe Shaq Lakers, right? And who can forget when Phil Jackson called Sacramento a cow town and then the Kings fans responded with all the cowbells and they made it one of the loudest arenas ever. But I, it, I felt like in retrospect, the Kings got so wrapped up in this narrative of the, the Lakers are the Kings of the NBA and we're these like, we're the underdogs. Uh, nobody, everybody is against us. The entire league is against us. The refs are against us. And we're just like out here scrapping for anything we can get. Like, you know, and I feel like the Grizzlies got a little bit rattled by Kerr's uh, uh, the code talk, and I think they responded poorly to it. And I think they have gotten a little bit; they're getting a little exposed in terms of their inexperience. And I think they got a little wrapped up in the whole narrative of them being the underdogs, everybody being against them, and. Everything that has happened after that has kind of not been great. The, 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 the suggestion that Jordan Poole pulling on Jaws' knee late in game three is what caused Jaws' knee injury or exacerbated it. Of course, Jaw has a history of right knee injuries, missed a number of games over the course of the regular season with a right knee injury, plays an extremely bruising 
contact-laden style in which he's constantly, like, knifing towards the rim and taking contact and jumping over guys, had knocked knees seemingly earlier in the in the game, uh, previous to the to the play that uh, Taylor Jenkins references. I just think that, like, if you're going to seriously say that Jordan Poole caused that and do it in a cat, like the casual tone of it doesn't match up. Like if I'm saying this opposing player, like tore, like on purpose reached down and injured my best player, then I'm doing it with so much anger. If that's legit that I'm not even talking about basketball. I'm like, we need to call the police that this happened. Are you kidding me? Like how, and it just is, it feels like they're trying to, answer the gamesmanship of Kerr when he brought the code thing into it, which I didn't love. I don't love suggesting that another player, that a player tries to injure a player on purpose. I think that basically that never happens. Like Bill Lambeer aside and maybe Bruce Bowen, I don't believe that there's ever been an NBA player that has on purpose gone out there trying to hurt. I think guys just get reckless maybe they lose their head for a second but I don't think anybody is ever trying to hurt anybody but like not letting Dylan Brooks talk like keeping him from the media for as long as they did I think that made it seem like they had something to hide let Dylan just come out and say hey it's unfortunate that happened and and I'm and I'm saddened that that happened go right back at Kerr when he says the code stuff and say hey we play hard and I know that Taylor Jenkins did kind of say stuff like that but like go right back at him and say you have Draymond Green on your team. Like, like this is just, we're playing hard-nosed. It got away from Dylan Brooks, and that's unfortunate, but the suggestion that we, we, we do anything untoward is kind of rich coming from a team that employs Draymond Green. Like, go hard at him there, but don't respond in this weird kind of sensitive way where you're hiding Brooks from the press, and then all of a sudden you're suggesting that J- Jordan Poole, like, uh, injured John Moran on purpose. It just has been this kind of weird flailing response. And I feel like it has exposed the Grizzlies a little bit mentally. Like this should be a learning experience for them. Can we just recap the context of if that was a supposed on purpose attack on John Moran's knee, where it's like they're leading by, I I forget how much they were up by. They were up by, they were killing him at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were killing him at that point. It's one, one early in the series, guys, if you're going to put a hit, on John Morant, you're not going to have Jordan Poole do it. You're going to have some guy, some Russian dude off the bench in the movie and, version of this all. Right, right, the movie. And he right, would, right. you know, and then expect them to do some like legendary, the drunken master, like five point knee, tear eight ligaments. Uh, it's just, it's impossible and unlikely. Um, and yeah, it, it just, it was the beginning of that. It then it just started this domino effect of, like you said, the Grizzlies kind of exposing their inexperience to the game of it all, not just on the court. It's right. Hey, how do you respond in these post-game press conferences when a question of, you know, sort of being baited, they fell for a lot of the bait. Taylor Jenkins, like Dylan Brooks, like, no, I'm not going to have Dylan Brooks respond right away because we're this hard nosed scrappy team. You know, we've been in the media, we've been doing everything right. It's like, no guys, like at the end of the day, just like, you didn't do it on purpose. No one did that. The, the code, the code is, oh, we don't hurt people <laughs> in games. The, it, there wasn't a code established. You just don't injure people. So I, I just, you know, the Grizzlies have been just straight up kind of weird. And I think it's them being young and, and somewhat immature. 
and going like, no, this is the strategy. Let's just, you know, we're, we're this hard, hard nosed team that, that doesn't, we're not soft. And it's just at this point weird. And furthermore, Dylan Brooks, 39 minutes. Um, <laughs> like I, I under, I, I guess Taylor Jenkins is saying like, I, I'm supporting my guys. These are the, this, these are the, the guys that brought us here. Dylan, of course, being an important cog in that and in what we did, our success, particularly when jaw was out and that stretch that we, uh, of winning that we did when jaw was out, but like D'Anthony Melton played nine minutes. I think Zaire Williams could have, could have done some stuff for them. And you're talking about guys who are going to bolster you defensively and not make decisions that, that make you ask, like, does Dylan Brooks have money on this game going the other way? Like, uh, it just feels like there were there were some buttons and levers that could have been pushed and thrown that didn't get going. Ryan, do you have any thoughts about this? When you're in this position, it's kind of all hands on deck. And I thought that they definitely could have employed more of their roster to try to get this game because this was another situation, like I said before, where they were very close to getting this win. This was a winnable game for them. And just to be that far from, you know, the, the promised land, the proverbial promised land of the night is just when you, when you look back at the tape, when you look back at the minutes, when you look back at the rotations, if you didn't empty the clip uh, and to try to get that attainable victory, then I think there's always going to be a sense of regret there. So when, when you know, this game is over and that regret already exists, when the series is over, I think they'll look back and they'll say, you know, Outside of that game three, we weren't very far away. I think that's part of the immaturity. I think that's part of the experience that we always said was going to be really good for Memphis. Uh, I should add that uh, before the game, Dylan Brooks finally spoke to the press. It had been five or six days or something like that and said, you know, it's paraphrasing now, but like, you know, if I could do it all over again, like obviously like I would not have made that foul and he feels bad about it. You can, you know, whatever people you know, obviously Golden State fans are going to have an, an opinion about like what the sincerity of that, but that shouldn't have happened five days later. Have him meet the press yeah. right away. Take the fucking gas out of it. Yeah. You know, de- deflate the tension around that and don't let Steve Kerr rattle you by by suggesting that you're a dirty squad. Like go back at him. Uh, and that is maybe something they'll they'll do for next time. I think the waiting is what, gives Golden State fans the right and the leeway to question the, you know, the sincerity of it. Because at this point, it seems like someone just pushed him out onto the stage and said, no, you have to say it. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to him just coming out and doing the right thing. Yeah, it was just all around weird. Uh, finally, let's talk about, uh, we're going to talk with uh, Nuggets beat reporter Mike Singer, of course, about this. But let's talk about Jokic and his second MVP. Philly fans are mad, and that's, they're right. Uh, they are upset that Joel Embiid uh, did not win an MVP award, uh, despite being – he would have been my pick for MVP. Uh, it's a different kind of case than the statistical case that uh, that you can make for Nikola Jokic. But I, I'll say this. Nikola Jokic's regular season, 27 points on 58% shooting, which is crazy, 33% from a three-point range since 33 minutes. 27 points, 13 rebounds. Basically eight assists, uh, steal and a half, one block a game. The advanced stats, as I'm sure everyone has heard, are incredible. Um, But my kind of favorite thing about Jokic's MVP is that inherent in the case 
and I've been watching Nuggets fans online do this for days. Built into Jokic's case is a a criticism of Nuggets players. It's like, man, Jokic is MVP, and you know why he's MVP? Because our <laughs> fucking team sucks. These guys suck. Fuck these uh, guys that we had. They were ter- Je- Jeff Green should have retired three years ago. Everybody else, terrible. Aaron Gordon, get him off my squad. It's just really funny to me. Uh, who do you agree with? Uh, Jokic winning his, his second in a row MVP. I I am bored of this conversation. <laughs> I, I, I will talk about no, but it is like. Let's talk, like, let's give this award at the end of the regular season. Because that is the great reminder to a lot of people. This for the regular season. And the thing is, like, Embiid deserved it too. And they had to dig deep to give this award to Jokic. And I think just the main, just general reaction is, it's boring to give it to a player two years in a row. We've been wanting Embiid to be as good as he is, and he was this season with all that drama around him. And they are making, and we're watching him, you know, step up in these playoffs and be this Joel Embiid MVP player. And we're like, I think the big question is, is he going to be this way again? Is he going to continue to grow? And, and that's, just, and that's yeah. what we're, we're all nervous. We're all nervous that he won't be, and that he won't get it. And then we'll talk back on 2022. The year Embiid wasn't deserved to be the MVP and we didn't give it to him. I got to give it up to Kendrick Perkins because rarely do I have to give it up to Kendrick Perkins. But I thought Kendrick actually had a good point, uh, which is he said today on Swagoon Perk, I don't know what the criteria for MVP is, but I do know that story should matter and nobody had a better story than Embiid this season. So the NBA very, very smartly has never defined what MVP means, right? So every year it is a discussion and a a redefinition by various parties about what it means to be the MVP, right? I think you can make a very, like obviously the statistical case, the winning case, the uh, the on-court, off-court. Yeah, (laughs) case for Jokic is super strong. Like he's great. You can watch him and you're like, He's great. He's a seven foot Magic Johnson, like who's also like an incredible low post player, who's also like the best passing big man of of all time. Uh, For Joel Embiid, he is like the difference maker for the Sixers. He is doing it on both ends, defensively and offensively. He's one of the most devastating low post players that we have in the game. And more to the point, I just think the stuff that he's had to deal with, with uh, the Ben, the whole Ben Simmons drama, with what they're going to do in terms of uh, with the James Harden drama that comes inherently with adding him to the mix, with his own injury struggles. We're watching him right now play through uh, the kind of like the, you know post concussion symptoms, a shattered eye socket, and a torn <laughs> ligament in his thumb. And and the history of injuries that he's had to deal with. And to your point, CJ, it's like, I just, I worry that we won't get a chance to give it to him again. Truly. Which is why I wanted to give it to him this year. I thought he was deserving. Uh, I, I thought he's had a great story. This is a guy who missed two years of the early part of his professional career with injuries. And I just feel like, are we, are we going to have a chance to give it to him again? I don't know. And that's why I thought he was my MVP this season. And if we don't, if he ends his career without an MVP, just after a career of us calling him an MVP caliber player, I think we're going to regret that, especially when we we look back at this back to back. 
because even if Jokic had the you know statistically and numerically superior season, I think the fact that he is already the defending MVP, as you've said in different um, instances before, should take away. It should make it harder to win the second one. To go back to back, you should be like head and shoulders. The bet it shouldn't. There should be no argument. That should be the only way you can win it. Otherwise, I think that they should divvy it out because got different guys deserve it. And people will say, okay, but Jokic's stats are actually better this year. Like he had great, you know, he was incredible the year before this, but he's actually even better now. To which I would say, Russell Westbrook was the year he won it when he averaged a triple double. He was kind yeah. of better the second year. He was better the second year. Yeah, and we didn't give it There's to a him. Precedent. Yeah, you know. There's so I, I just think that like all of this changes. Uh, you, it's all about narrative is a bad word, but I think that it is all about narrative and the argument you make. And my argument for Joel Embiid was he is an MVP level player. He is everything to the Philadelphia 76ers. He's had to deal with the kind of drama that uh, Jokic has never had to deal with over his career, has had to battle his own body over the course of his career in a way that other players just haven't had to do. And he's great, great, great and a warrior. And I wish we had, I wish he had won it. That's all. Yeah. What did you guys see? Uh, winning time in the finale. Did you guys yes. see this? Yes, I did see the it. very factual, accurate winning time. There's that scene, and no, there's no spoilers. This happened, yeah. in, but they were, you know, Kareem was the MVP of that series. But D- David Stern went up to Magic in the hallway, and he goes, "Hey, man, you played. This is your moment." If we can just make that part of the equation, whose moment is it? And it's this season was Embiid's moment. You know, it's you said narrative is a bad word. Maybe it's moment. It's like we were talking about Embiid this whole goddamn season. And plus the stats that were somewhat close to Jokic, I, I just think like that's enough. And I think that's what we just want going forward is to just take account for stats narrative, all aspects of what is going on um, in awarding these players. Because we've done it in the past. Let's just do it every season. Here's Doc Rivers uh, on Joel Embiid today, this morning, quote, I don't know if I could have done more than he did this year. Um, play without the second best player all year. Uh, his resume is great. I'm not taking anything away from Jokic either because he's a hell of a player. I do think this whole analytic-driven society world is out of control at times with some of the measures they use. Like, watch the dang game and decide is what I've always said. Uh, but at the end of the day, if Joel had won, which I thought he should have, there would have been criticism that way. If Giannis had won, only one guy could win, unfortunately. I'll just say also, the the criticism of Jokic as... You got to watch the game. I mean, you watch yoga and she's fucking great. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's this like weird <laughs> counter narrative where it's like, oh, only if you understand Vorp can you really can you understand <laughs> like what Jokic You watch him and it's like, oh, that guy's the Nuggets don't score unless Jokic assists on it or scores himself. Like uh, anyway, I thought it should have been a bead. But here we are up next. John Hollinger. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. 
So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Second round of the NBA playoffs are in full swing, and it's Monday morning. Uh, Nikola Jokic has just been announced as the NBA MVP, his second straight MVP in a row. A lot of that discourse has centered on the, uh, the importance of stats, in uh, advanced stats in Nikola Jokic's campaign. And if you want to blame somebody for that, I've got no one better than the great John Hollinger, the inventor of PER, one of the great uh, analysts in the history, in the modern history of the NBA. Uh, John, thank you for joining Take Line. It's great to have you here. Uh, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Super surprising games this weekend. I never in my life dreamed that uh, that Phoenix Dallas would be two two. Same with uh, with Philly Heat. I never thought that would be a two two series with with the injuries that uh, that Philly was dealing with throughout that series with uh, James Harden's uh, seeming ongoing decline. What what have been the big surprises that you've uh, that you've seen thus far in the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, probably Dallas being 2-2 is probably the biggest one. Just the way those first two games went, especially, it just looked like Phoenix had them completely outclassed. And then they've gone to some of this stuff that worked against Rudy Gobert, and they're finding it works against DeAndre Ayton, too, where they put five people Mm -hmm. around the three-point line. It's just really hard to help from there. So Phoenix's guards are better defensively than Utah's were, but it still really opens things up for... Not just Luca, but Jalen Brunson and Spencer Dinwiddie to get in the paint and and create problems. And you almost wonder if they've found kind of the new cheat code for the NBA, and that a lot more teams are going to be doing this going forward. You've seen people start talking about this, but like at some point, uh, shouldn't the Suns just say, "Okay, Luca, go for sixty if you want"? I remember like this is how teams used to play the old Nash Suns back during the playoffs. Go for sixty if you want, but we're going to stay home on all these three-point shooters and not let them get off because that is what is killing us. Um, do you expect Phoenix to do some version of that going forward? It's a little hard. I mean, once once you get a screen for Luca, you have to make a decision, right? And usually mm-hmm. with Aiton, the decision is to have him play a drop. So now you're in a little more of a rotation situation where other guys can get involved. So it's it's an interesting quandary for the Suns. And I personally, I like the idea of letting Luca go for 60 because I think he he tends to burn himself out when he scores too much in the in the first half of games. Uh, we saw that certainly in game two. Yeah. So I like that idea from that perspective. And I, I do wonder if the Suns will lean more in that direction as this series goes on. But if you're doing that, you're probably asking your bigs to switch on him some, certainly more than they have. And, and that may result in them getting cooked too. John, I had a question. So say hypothetically the Mavs take this series <laughs> Uh-huh. I think everyone was everyone was kind of saying, oh, the Mavs are going to lose this series. So what do they got to do this summer? They got to go out and get a center. Say they make it past this series. Do you see the Mavs spending big on a center this summer? Well, I, I don't see them spending big on a center either way because they can't. Um, I mean, they're kind of locked into their salary structure. Now, if they, yeah. if they do a trade, you know, they still have that Berton's contract clogging up their cap. So if they take that in a future pick and maybe – Trade for a center, that's a different discussion. But I do also wonder 
what type of center they would want. Because I think the idea has always been, oh, we'll get somebody who's a really great lob threat and we'll, uh, you know, we'll pair that guy with Luca. Or the alternative, we'll get a great pick and pop guy, Porzingis, and put that yeah. guy <laughs> with Luca. And I, I think that, you know, they're kind of going back toward the Porzingis model a little bit with how they're playing. They're just using uh, Kleba in that role instead. So it, it is kind of interesting that they're that they're tilting back toward uh, just just playing that that perimeter model and not really having a rim runner next to Luke. I mean, Dwight Powell hasn't been playing that much in, in either of these two series. So uh, it's it's an interesting decision for Dallas. I mean, I will say the other thing is we get all excited when these series are tied 2-2. If you yeah. look historically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it usually, when the home team wins the first four games of a series, it way more often than not, the team with the better seed ends up advancing. Well, speaking of that, let's talk about Philadelphia, Miami. Uh, a, another series that I never thought would have been 2-2. Uh, if Joel Embiid is healthy for that entire series, I'm surprised that it's 2-2. Uh, considering he was out, I'm surprised that it was 2-2. But a, a lot of the discussion has to be about uh, James Harden, who had a bounce back. I don't even know if you could. It's like <laughs> calling Jesus coming out of the tomb after the three days a bounce back win for <laughs> Jesus Christ, like on Easter Sunday. He would like. Uh, so hard had a huge bounce back game. Come right? on, this, is, this uh, isn't like DeAndre. It's, it's not DeAndre having thirty, right? <laughs> like, come on! I can't. We're surprised he scored thirty-one. I know, everybody. You know, and and he said after the game, "Well, my shots are falling." I I, I think that is, I think that's a good uh, analysis of what happened. It's not like he was, uh, get you know, driving past guys with the kind of liquid quickness that he has shown in the past. He was he was hitting some really really tough. Tough step back threes uh, had had he was so deep in his bag it was it was really incredible. But what what are you seeing in that series? And and is it can we say that James Harden is back? Should we apologize? Should should I should I sign the apology form that is going around on the internet for all the people who declare James Harden washed? Must I apologize in in written format now? He's like thirty percent washed. <laughs> Right. He's he's not what he was, but yeah. he still can help you win. Right. Yeah. So, and that, I mean, the funny thing about that series, it's just been, it's been make or miss league. I mean, yeah. writ large, every single game, the losing team, yeah. every single game is like, wow, we were like eight for 43 from three. Huh. And meanwhile, like the, yesterday you had Harden who hit a lot of really difficult threes off the dribble, as you say. And that was a real difference for, for Philly. I, I do think Philadelphia can win this uh, series. I think Embiid, the, the biggest story of the last two games to me is that Embiid has completely snuffed out Bam Adebayo's offensive role. And so it just puts so much pressure on Jimmy Butler to do everything offensively for Miami. So I, I think that puts Miami in a little bit of a difficult spot. I'm interested to see what happens in uh, in game five when the home venue changes again. Uh, I... I'm really interested by this series now. Hey, John, do do you think this story coming out with Jokic this morning? Do you think that affects the series at all in Embiid? Or I mean, Embiid's playing great, but is there going to be a sort of a targeted comeback here? 
Well, this isn't like Hakeem playing against David Robinson, right? Yeah. He's not like, I'll show you Dwayne Dedman, you know? <laughs> um, so uh, I, I don't see as much of that. And I think Embiid probably, I mean, I think everyone sort of knew Jokic was going to win and Embiid was going to come in second. Yeah. So I don't think this is like some big shock either. So I, it, it's hard for me to see it tilting things that way. But I mean, Embiid, Embiid has been amazing regardless, right? So yeah. uh, I just think he's a problem for Miami. And the other thing that makes him a problem is Miami loves to switch and put Bam on the perimeter yeah. guy, which once you do that, now you have you know, Jimmy Butler or Tyler hero or somebody trying to guard Embiid. It's a, so they've been, they've been pretty good about giving enough help to make the entry passes hard, but it's still like you're in a bad position for rebounding. You pick up fouls. Like there's just a lot that goes on when you do that. You may, you mentioned the make or missness of it. Jimmy Butler was everything offensively for the heat this weekend and, and not much else there that uh, with in terms of scoring that wasn't uh, initiated by him. I half expected him to make his entire team like stay after and shoot baskets the way that he <laughs> so often performatively does when he plays poorly. But I, I, I think there's been a lot of surprise that like, you know, Duncan Robinson owner of a $90 million contract uh, yeah. hasn't seen more time considering the, the dearth of scoring that the heat are, are dealing with right now. What, what do you make of that? And uh, do you expect to see Robinson at some point uh, in this series? Yeah, what was crazy is that he didn't even play in garbage time in game three yeah. when they opened their, they emptied their bench and put in everyone except Robinson. It was like, mm-hmm. it was like a mafia rub out, right? Like it was <laughs> like, what's going on? What's going on here? Um, you could see in the Atlanta series that they had a problem when they had Robinson and Hero on the floor at the same time that it was just too easy to target one or the other. And if they're going to live with having one bad defending wing on the court, it was going to be hero. That wasn't as much of an issue when they had Robinson in the starting lineup, but they basically found a better version of Robinson when they got Max Struess. And so he's, he kind of pushed Robinson out of, out of that role. I still think there are spots where they could have turned to him. Like I, they've been going with Gabe Vincent. Some, I think Robinson could help him more in, in those minutes, especially uh, if, I mean, we'll see if Kyle Lowry plays, but if, if Lowry was on the floor already or you, or you had other ball handlers on the floor already, usually had either Lowry or Hero in the game, you can have Robinson out there, and I think he might give you more than Vincent would. But uh, either, either way, I mean, even if, even if he was playing, it would be in a diminished capacity, right? We're talking like 10 minutes as the eighth guy in the rotation. So bigger picture, and I wrote about this for The Athletic a couple weeks ago, and it was apparent that Victor Oladipo was going to be taking his time because that's the other thing yeah. that happened is Oladipo didn't play all year and now he's uh, become one of their core guys. The, the, like you said, they're sitting on this $90 million deal. I think that and Miami's next two first round picks on draft night becomes what the, their bait for whatever star they go hunting for. I have to ask you as a, uh, as a, a former uh, employee front office a uh, person with the Memphis Grizzlies. What yes. do you make of the uh, uh, of the way we are talking and that people are talking about that series now with, uh, you know, a number of notable hard fouls, starting with uh, Draymond's uh, ejection after the Brandon Clark foul and pull down, which some people called. I, I thought it was drastic, but not unreasonable to eject, to eject Draymond there. 
then, of course, you had the Dylan Brooks foul on uh, Gary Payton II that uh, sent Gary Payton II uh, on the injured list, and who knows when we, we, we could see him again. Uh, and then, of course, uh, John Morant's knee injury, which is being framed you know, by Taylor Jenkins, uh, coach of the Memphis Grizzlies, and others, uh, the other voices within the Grizzlies as being directly caused by Jordan Poole, like, pulling on his knee. Uh, what do you make of the tenor, the discussions around uh, this series and that play in particular? I mean, it's it's the playoffs, and this, you know, <laughs> this stuff is fun and everything, but, like, there, I mean, the Jordan Poole play, like, that was just total suspension fishing to me. Like, it was a, yeah. it was a nothing play, and then, I mean, it... it to be fair, like you had Warriors people online, like, oh, Desmond Bay dove into Poole's legs. It's like, yeah. no, he fell down. Like, what are you talking about? Um, so anyway, it's a, it, and it's just it. We get, we get serious like this every year. I mean, this one was unusual because it started out right. physical right away. You had those incidents in the first two games, so the temperatures already turned up, and then you have Memphis's best player potentially not playing in Game Four now. Although they like. They still won't say what's wrong with his knee. He, I, I, Taylor <laughs> Jenkins's quote. He's Taylor got a, Jenkins's he's got a thing. quote. Yeah, Taylor Jenkins's quote is, "I think it's likely that we probably won't see it." There's like multiple <laughs> yeah. adverbs in yeah. the sentence. Where yeah, it's like yeah. unclear. But it was, but it was the same thing when he was out at the end of the year. Yeah, you know? it was just knee soreness, and it was like, damn, this thing's been sore for a while. Like, are we sure that's all that's going on there? Um, so. That 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 whole thing's been been a little odd too. Uh, so I, I just think there's a lot of gamesmanship underlying it that that you you know usually see in these playoffs. And it, it would be unfortunate for Memphis though if Morant can't go because he was he was the one thing like even as they were getting their butts kicked in Game Three, Golden State still didn't have a handle on him at all. Yeah. Do you guys feel like fans are really forcing these teams to hate each other when they? They're, they just like, there's not a real like, rivalry. I feel like no one hates each other. They're just both wildly energetic and scrappy teams. Yeah, I think, I think that's accurate. I, I mean, the, the hatred and whatever you want to call it, I think is much more like at the, at the fan level and at yeah. the, yeah. you know, and then competitively, like these teams are doing what they're doing just to try to get an advantage. But like, I, I don't see like, there's not the, personal level hate that like when we played the Clippers in 2013, like that was, that was much more personal. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Uh, Go Google the choke slam, uh, the famed uh, uh, Zebo choke slam. If uh, for folks at home, who want to get a taste of uh, the, the viciousness of that particular series, which is super fun. Do you think if, do you think if Kirk could go back in time, he would not say the code thing? Because I feel like that's, (laughs) Whether he whether he thinks that or not, okay, yeah, I think that's the thing that kind of pushed the discourse a little into the overheated side. Like it's one thing to say that was a reckless play and and a one that clearly got away from Dylan Brooks, and we are so saddened for GP who is you know, uh, been toiling on the fringes of the NBA and now found a home and he's going to a free agency year. This is really devastating for him, yada, yada, yada. But I think to take it into the unwritten rules territory, it feels like that's as fair or unfair as you think that is. I think that's the thing that pushed this all over the edge. 
I, I think it did a little bit because when people hear that, they think of baseball. I, I wrote about this in the athletic today, but they think about like baseball managers, like losing their, yeah. losing, losing their shit over a sacrifice bunt or something, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> no, there's an unwritten rule about that. You can't, you can't do that when the score is eight to three right. in the eighth inning, you know? And, and so uh, I, I, I thought it, it actually, he lost his message a little bit when he said the code rather than just talking about the, the fact that the scariest thing for any basketball player is to get hit from behind. You have no control yeah. over it. You're going full speed and you're just going to land violently and hope nothing breaks. The Memphis Grizzlies record without draw this year, 16 and two, quite good. Uh, on the other hand, they're playing a, a Warriors team that is not going to make mistakes in the way that the uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves made mistakes in the in the first round clash between uh, Memphis and and Minnesota that allowed Memphis to win that series. Uh, assuming that Jaw is out, uh, which is yeah. unclear at this time, wh- what do you see them doing? Where do they go for scoring? That's probably the biggest question. They'll start Tyus Jones. They'll they'll play uh, Melton more. They'll have Dylan Brooks back. Uh, so defensively, they'll probably be more solid. I also wonder if they're going to bring back Steven Adams for game four into the starting lap. I mean, they're not really getting anything out of Tillman anyway. So I, I, I think you just have to try to go back and be that be that team you were in the regular season, even if Adams isn't uh, maybe tailor-made defensively for going against Golden State. And then if he's starting, he's not on the floor when Poole is, who has been their biggest problem. Uh so he doesn't have to worry about switching on to pool. They'd have Clark in the game by then. So I, I do wonder if they do that. The The biggest thing, I mean, not having Ja, you're going to lose stuff offensively. It's can you get it back at the defensive end right. uh, by by playing Jones more, playing Melton more, and and just being more solid at that end because that's Ja's biggest weakness. And that was one of the reasons that they were able to keep their heads above water when, when he was out of the lineup is that the defense – improved. So uh with with all of that said, I just don't know how they're going to score enough without him. I, I think that's going to be a real problem. I I they're yeah. going to be counting on Brooks who has not had a good playoffs to be the Brooks that was was averaging 25 against Utah last year. They need Jaron Jackson to stay hot from 3 and they need to do this ensemble thing where nine different guys score eight points and they end up with a bunch that way. If Jaron Jackson stays on the floor if he can stay on the floor throughout his career, how how good can he be? So all defense talent at the defensive end. I still think he can get to another level as a three-point shooter. I mean, he shot in the low 30s this year. The thing is, his footwork is so good for a big guy. Like, he can shoot coming off of pin downs and doing stuff that a lot of guys can't do. Um, it's just the actual form with his, his arm sometimes it takes him astray. But you watch his feet, and you're like, oh, my God. Uh, so I, I, I still think there's stuff he can get to there. And then the other big thing for him is he's all left off the bounce. And a lot of times when he does a show and go past the first, he doesn't see the second line of defense and he just trucks the help defender and picks up charging fouls that way. So for him to, I guess, better, have better court vision off the dribble when he does put it on the floor and have a better right hand would probably be the two biggest things for him offensively. Defensively, I think the sky is the limit for him. Yeah. Even now, he picks up fouls in the bunches, but they're not on defensive plays. He's not picking yeah. them up challenging shots at the rim. He's picking them up just to get his arm caught on somebody on a 
rebound or random loose ball or, you know, offensive fouls and just the most random bizarre ways that have nothing to do with his defensive role. Uh, Chris Paul, uh, he's 37. He will have a game where he goes 14 to 14 and then he will seemingly go into like a deep uh, energy saving hibernation for a number of games. Uh, what? How can how can the the Phoenix Suns get more consistent like uh, play out of him? And is what is going on with him? Like it is it has been really been weird to watch him the last several games just kind of not affect the Suns in the way that you're used to seeing him. What any idea like what exactly the Mavs are doing, or is it just like this guy's 37 and he can't bring it at a super high level game after game? The first eight games of the playoffs, the, so the six games of the New Orleans series and the and the two of the Dallas, I think he had one bad game, and then the rest of the time he was awesome. So uh, I I thought he was having a really a, a tremendous playoffs uh, up until these last two games, and then he you know hasn't quite been at that level, which I guess you'd sort of expect him to regress a little. I mean, him fouling out obviously was kind of a surprise, and the way he fouled out uh, <laughs> certainly. But he's he's never. I mean, Booker is the high volume guy on that team, and and Paul has always played kind of the number two role uh, in in their offense. And sometimes he steps it up and picks his spots. Sometimes he, like you say, I mean, he kind of hibernates for a, for a half or longer, and and then dials it up in the fourth quarter. We didn't. He wasn't really around for the fourth quarter yesterday, so he couldn't do that. Uh, but I, I, I just think that's his tempo and that's how he plays now and that's how he manages himself through a game. It just we didn't we didn't really get to see the second half Chris Paul yesterday because he had no second half. I think he played like three minutes total in the second half yesterday. Well, and just going by like when he was on the Rockets, it feels like though, like say he doesn't bounce back from this, he, there's a bit of like he feels like he conquered the mountain mid-series on some of these things. Do you think there's any any possibility that that's a reality that he almost peaks too early. Oh, in a, in a series. Uh, I'm trying to think, uh, man, I don't know. I mean, he, I mean, he peaks pretty late in that new Orleans series, right? Yeah, that's true. That's he shot true. 14 yeah. for 14 in the clincher. So I, 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 I don't know. I mean, is there an element of teams, teams, figure out how to scheme him a little better as the series go on. There might be, there might be something to that, but uh, I, I don't know. I just, I just thought Phoenix had a tough couple of road games and I still kind of, I still think they're going to end up winning that series. Finally, John, for no apparent reason, I have to ask you. Okay. uh, Tyus Jones, Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brunson. There's a number of, of, of uh, young guards currently active in the NBA playoffs that have been linked with uh, with the New York Knicks for various reasons. Uh, the Knicks notably have been in need of a playmaker for something like 20 plus years. Um, is there anyone out there that, uh, that is worth giving up some of the Knicks young players for um, and that can move the needle for that team at, you know, as a as a ball handler, as a perimeter threat. To me, I mean, to me, the 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 scenario that makes the most sense is John Wall in a one year deal. 
right? Because, I mean, the Knicks have set themselves up to go big game hunting, right? They, to use their- Unfortunately, yes. Young players, yeah, draft picks, yeah. expiring contracts, whatever, to be to trade for somebody who is a who is a high wattage star. So to move some of that for somebody who does not move the needle for them in the meantime, I don't think really makes sense. Now Donovan Mitchell is a different story, right? Like if he if he becomes actually available by trade, yeah, then the Knicks uh, should should go ahead back up the truck and do that. But j- just to just to get somebody who is. 10% better than having John Wall and Emmanuel quickly or Ricky Rubio and Emmanuel quickly. Like I, I, I have a hard time seeing that really being worth the, the trouble for them. Like even if they could get a sign and trade with, with Brunson, like they're, they're probably giving up enough in that, that I'm not really sure it's worth it for them. He's John Hollinger, national writer for the athletic. John, thanks so much for joining take line. Enjoy the playoffs. Thanks for having the show. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. It is Monday morning and uh, Denver Nuggets center Nicole Jokic has officially been announced as the 2021-2022 NBA League MVP, the most valuable player, uh, beating out Joel Embiid, uh, Giannis, uh, other great players in the league to win his second in a row. Uh, It was, uh, and at times, acrimonious debate about who should win. Uh, all deserving candidates, but Nikola Jokic has done it again for a second straight. And here to talk to us about that is Nuggets beat writer for the Denver Post, Michael Singer. Mike, thank you for joining us. Of course. I appreciate you guys having me. And I would just like to say from the jump, the fact that Joker has won back-to-back MVPs, that's an indictment. That means Joel Embiid, Giannis Antetokounmpo are not very good players, even though they came in second and third place in the NBA voting for this award. Thanks a lot, Mike. Uh, that's been Take Line for today. We're going to shut it down right here, and that's going to be the sound by the show. <laughs> Appreciate it. All right. It was, it was fun, guys. <laughs> so, but what do you, uh, you know, like a lot of this debate, first of all, what's your takeaway uh, from this, his second MVP? And then we can talk about the way the debate about this particular award transpired over the course of the season. Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's a special award for Nicola. Becomes one of thirteen players in NBA history to ever win back to back MVPs. The fifth center uh, all time. Uh, this is the kind of guy. That, I mean, this was the forty first pick in the draft. He already did more than anyone ever expected of him in the yeah. NBA. And this dude is is now among like the pantheon of NBA legends. I mean, you've seen the list. It's it's Wilt, it's Kareem, Bill Russell, MJ, Magic, Steph, Giannis, Steve Nash, and now Joker. Uh, I don't think you know. Let's just be honest. I, I don't think a lot of people 
quote unquote, wanted or expected him to win a back-to-back MVP. I was just looking at, you know, that NBA uh, GM survey at the beginning of the year that they do. They, they predict who's going to win the MVP in the upcoming season. He was not in the top six, according to the NBA GMs, whose job it is to evaluate this. So this dude just did more with less. I think that's the reason he won the award. He didn't have yeah. Michael Porter Jr., no Jamal Murray, um, and yet he dragged this team to 48 wins. I, you can say all you want and indict him all you want about the playoffs, but uh, sorry, Daryl Morey, until the NBA changes its rules, this is a regular season award. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, okay, obviously in your heart and your mind, it's Jokic. But I would love to hear, say gun to your head, you had to make a case for Embiid to win this award. W- what's the hype version that you're given for Embiid to win this over Jokic this season? I think that the the best, you know, the best evidence you have for Joel Embiid is that he is more physically imposing and more physically dominant down low just with his size his his obviously defensive uh, abilities his his mobility is obviously more impressive and more significant than Nikola Jokic um I'm saying specifically around the interior he is a a beast he is tough to deal with uh and look, Nicola would say that, would be the first person to say that. He respects him to the nth degree. They have a relationship off the court, and they, they have a ton of respect for each other. Um, so that would be it. And, and I see the 40-point, 10-rebound games the most this season. That's unbelievable. And it's not like he didn't have to deal with a lot of crap uh, in, in Philadelphia this year in his own right. So that would be the argument. And, and they finished higher. They finished with three more wins. So if you're just doing a head-to-head comparison, I think you can make the argument that he is the more physically dominant player. Um, from a broad scope of things, and I've covered Nicola for four years now, the way that he impacts everything. And, like, you can't even indict his yeah. defense anymore. He is not a defensive target anymore. He, you know, he, he's among, like, the top five centers in steals and blocks. You can't say that he's this slow-footed um, plotting center who can't process a defense. Like he can play defensively. And oh, by the way, he kills you on offense at every single level of the game. So, um, like I said from the jump, huge indictment on Joel Embiid. Awful basketball player. The fact that uh the fact that he is number two or number three, what are we even doing here? Why why even, you know, let's just vote on number one and get past this. Um a lot of the discourse around Nicola's uh, MVP candidacy, uh, specifically from the from critics of his candidacy, kind of centered around this idea that like it's an advanced stats case. I think Nick Wright was probably the most uh, loud proponent of this. A particular kind of argument that it was like, oh, the VORP people, you know, Nikola Jokic's VORP campaign. The implication, of course, being that watch this guy and you will see that he fails the eye test. Now that, whatever you think of Nikola's case, it was patently ridiculous. You watch the guy and you're like, wow, this guy's great. <laughs> but what what was, did that argument, uh, did that bother the team at all? Was Did that get any traction in terms of like annoying the Nuggets? And like, wh- and what do you think of that particular case? The idea that, oh, it's an advanced stat case for, for Jokic. And, and if you watch the guy, you're just not going to be impressed. I think, you know, when you use that as your argument, you stake out that case on an island, you got to dig all the way down. You got to plant your flag and make that a thing. 
And so even if it's not a thing, which I don't think it is because he's the first dude in NBA history with 2,000 points, 1,000 rebounds, 500 assists. I'm not even a math guy. And those are nice round numbers. <laughs> yeah, the counting stats are really good. Yeah. <laughs> like if you just want to do those. So so Michael Malone, Nuggets coach, has asked, what can he do to top that? And he goes, well, shit, he can get 2,500 points. He can get 1,500 rebounds and 1,000 assists. Like it's it's nuts, you know, to, to say it's just the, the, the calculator MVP. Come on now. To drag this team to 48 wins, it was pretty evident how, uh, you know, the lack of depth that they had in that first round series against Golden State. It was painfully yep. obvious. Uh, Aaron Gordon's supposed to be a number four, it, it, you know, either a number four or number five. He's not supposed to be a number two. Like, I looked it up. There was no, Aaron Gordon was the lowest uh, sc- number two score in the NBA on any team across the league. He had 15 points a game. And yet, uh, they got to 48 wins. They to say whatever you want about how much they tested the Golden State Warriors. Um, I don't know how you can in- indict what this dude did by, you know, the, the day in, day out stuff. And you talk about the cumulative stuff. He won MVP last year. He was better this year with less help. In a nutshell, a- a- analytics. I didn't use any numbers there. <laughs> Mike, your energy on it, I was convinced it was in B before this. So, uh, but your energy, you know, if he had a slightly less impressive season this year, he would still be in the conversation. But so you truly think this, this past season was more impressive than the first time he won MVP. Yeah. And you want to know what else is crazy? Everybody thinks he came out of the woodwork. Three years ago, he finished number four in the MVP race. It's not that crazy that this dude is doing what he's doing. This has been a slow build. He's now four-time All-Star, back-to-back MVPs. The fact that, you know, the GMs didn't think he was going to be have a, a, the potential to, to uh, repeat it is a curious thing. And I also think that there's a lot of, um, you know, if you were to give the NBA, the, the NBA itself some truth serum, um, would they want Nikola Jokic to win again? Probably not, because for marketing reasons, for rivalry reasons, we want to promote a Joel Embiid versus Nikola Jokic. That is fun. That is entertaining. And Nikola Jokic, whether he gives a damn about the MVP award or not, he just put on a better performance than he did last year in his inaugural victory. So um, I think he does it out of out of spite. I think that he's like, <laughs> I don't care, but I'm still going to show you that I'm this good. And that's kind of... He did. I, I don't know how you indict what he did this year. You uh, you mentioned the kind of like dearth of help around uh, Nikola Jokic, Aaron Gordon. Uh, I loved his comments after the elimination, which I'm paraphrasing now because I'm going off the dome with something like, you know, uh, I've just got to make better decisions. You know, seeing how a good team plays it makes me realize you know, how I need to alter my game. Uh, And it's like, man, you've been in the league eight years and it's just wild to be like, oh, I guess I should like make better plays. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, Porter Jr. has dealt with back problems his entire career going back to college. It's the reason his draft stock fell so uh, precipitously. Uh, Jamal coming back, you know, off of one of the most, uh, you know, serious injuries a player can have in the NBA. Where is the help? coming from uh and do the nuggets need to think about even more help for Nikola Jokic obviously Gordon's here but Porter Jr with that balky back 
how much can they count on him? Uh, unclear what Jamal is going to give the team when he comes back. Although recent history tells us that uh, that uh, those type of knee injuries can are are not as serious as they once were in the NBA. Um, is help coming for Jokic? Yeah, the the help is on the way, and, and they took a long. A uh, picture approach with Jamal Murray not returning this year with Michael Porter Jr. not returning. They both flirted with uh, comeback attempts and, and tried uh, to come back at various times and, and both kind of rationalized. We have a cap on what we can do this season, given that we're not fully healthy. But this offseason um, and going into next season, if you were to find that quote unquote window of, of the Nuggets' best chances to win a championship, it is this year and next year. And the reason I say that Michael Porter Jr. is about to start begin a five-year contract that they gave to him before they needed to give him. And he has his third back surgery in five years. Now, again, I'm not a math guy, but those, those are uncomfortable numbers and uncomfortable ratios when you just committed 145 million guaranteed 170 million over the life of this five-year deal. If you want to maximize and capitalize on Nikola Jokic's prime, which is what Michael Malone said, Tim Connolly said at the end of this year, it is these first two years when who knows how long Michael Porter Jr.'s back is going to be a reliable reliable player. How long can you trust that for? And then Jamal, I think that they they think he's going to return uh, and be fully healthy. I think so too. I mean, you know, 15, 16 months off is going to yeah. do him a, a lot of good. I talked to Clay Thompson during the playoffs and he said it was laughable um, that they would even consider bringing him back, dropping him into a playoff series. That's just an unfair ask. I, I think a lot of people would agree with that, you know, to, to force a guy's hand. So for, you know, that didn't happen. I do think the Cavalry's coming. I do think they're going to be healthy next year. The key, and by the way, Again, without those two guys, the Nuggets had the sixth best offense in the NBA. The sixth. That's with Aaron Gordon, Will Barton, Monte Morris, who's a backup point guard starting, and 35-year-old Jeff Green as your power forward, who was never supposed to be starting at power forward. Um, So all those things, he still does it. They, where they need to improve is defensively. They're, they're just yeah. they're, they're not good enough defensively. Aaron Gordon's really the only plus defender. And then, you know, with the with that triangle of Joker, Jamal, and MPJ, how much do you trust them defensively? And it, are there upgrades to be made um, specifically in that starting unit where you can lessen the burden uh, on Joker defensively? Well, so, okay, I, I want to go back to the MVP award because I do feel like I've trashed I, – I was one of the NBA Twitter guys was like, it should be Embiid. So now I'm trying to, I'm trying to um, redeem myself and let's, cel- <laughs> let's celebrate the MVP award. But – that's, that's kind of my question, because you followed him as a person as well. What, and we've met his brothers. We've seen a little bit glimpses of his off-court life. How was Jokic reacting to a back-to-back MVP? How, you know, how was he going out and celebrating? We're obviously going to see the official you know, acceptance of the award, but how does a Jokic feel about actually getting this MVP? Does it drive him? Does it, is it just another you know, accolade? Like, how, how is he reacting to this? Well, how does he celebrate? I'm pretty sure he uh, he rides around the horse track uh, at, at double speed. He's like, all right, dream catcher. That's his favorite horse. Let's go. Let's go. We got two times. So th- that's, I think, the first celebration. Uh, you know, I asked him this. I asked him this after game five of the Golden State uh, series when they got eliminated. He goes, 
Probably I would celebrate with some music, with some beer, with my family, with my friends. Uh, and he goes, that's probably how you're supposed to do it. And I love that he hedges because he's like, how the hell? I don't know. Like, but the fact is he does know. I don't know how he got down last year um, when he did win it. But this time it's a lot different because he's back home in Sambor, Serbia, amongst his family and friends and amongst people where he could just like lay back and chill and do whatever he wants without worrying about being caught on camera, which is all of our losses. Uh, and I'm very sad about that. <laughs> but um this like it's funny because he claims he, he he will tell you multiple times he's indifferent to the award, but I don't really think that he is. I think he's more indifferent than other players and certainly Embiid his campaign for it last year. Steph Curry, LeBron campaigned for it. Joker will never campaign for it. And the reason why is because I don't think he wants his legacy tied up in individual awards. He knows that it is um, intricately connected to how he will be viewed in history. But he, you know, coming from where he came from, a team first approach, he doesn't care about those individual accolades. He said a million times, like, I want to win titles. I want to win a championship. Like, that's what I care about. And, you know, a month or two into this season, I go, it was pretty obvious he was going to be in the running for MVP again. And I go, Nicola, how excited are you uh, to be, you know, a part of this MVP conversation again? And he's like, can't wait, brother. Like he is, he, he cannot handle, he doesn't like the attention. He doesn't like the spotlight. And I mean, at the core of who he is, he's super humble. So to, to have all these accolades poured on him, he's just, that's not who he is in his nature. And that's not an indictment on other people. Other people can lean into the award if they want it or, or campaign for themselves. He's just not going to do that. But again, it just so happens he's that damn good where he forces everybody's hand and it's like, well, I guess he's going to win it again. He is Mike Singer, Nuggets beat writer for the Denver Post. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, congratulations uh, to Denver. Uh, it was really cool. Can't wait to see the Nuggets uh, back in action next season, man. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks a lot. That's it for us, folks. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA, which airs every Friday. Check it out. Goodbye. Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Ryan Wallerson and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Drort. Engineering, editing, and sound design by the great Sarah Dubalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Mia Kelman is on the Zoom for Vibes, and the vibes are fantastic all the time. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.